Welcome to episode four of The Grade, the Northeast Charter Schools Network podcast. I'm Joe. I'm Jess. And today we are here with outgoing Northeast Charter Schools Network CEO, Kyle Rosencrantz. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. Uh, So Kyle joined the network in 2013, first as our VP, and then took over as CEO in 2014. So as things come to an end, what is next? So I will be joining a network of high-performing charter schools called KIPP New Jersey. They're based in Newark, um, and they also have schools in Camden. And they're poised to double in size over the next five to ten years. And I'll be helping them engage all their stakeholders from philanthropy to uh, elected officials and their parent uh, activists and how they can get all the resources they need in order to reach that goal. We're glad that you're just going to be right over the border and the charter world is small, as we've come to know. So we're sure we'll be seeing you, but let's talk about now your time at Nexon. You came in in 2013 at the beginning of the year during a time of transition for the organization when two states were merging, New York and Connecticut, into one association. So that was a transition period here. And now you also have had the chance to oversee two states in their legislative sessions now four years. It's a big, broad question, but do you have any key takeaways from the politics in both states? You've been here for some really fascinating legislative sessions. Yeah, there's, there's a lot of fascinating stuff that went on over those years. And, and um, for as different as the two states are, a lot of similarities that I find interesting. One was uh, we were coming into both New York and Connecticut at a time in which there were uh, charter supporter governors in both states, uh, and moderate Democrats for that matter. And uh, these are individuals who uh, sort of bucked some of the local statehouse trends um, and were unafraid to show their support for charter schools. And that helped us win over more supporters and to change policies in both states over those years. Um, so I think having strong leadership that's um, unafraid to stick up for kids and for uh, the necessity of choice for everyone, uh, not just rich families, uh, was a really important similarity uh, that we saw across both states. Um, I think what we also see, you know, we're the Northeast Charter Schools Network, and I think in the Northeast part of the country, um, the teachers' unions and their opposition to charter schools is fierce. They're, they're very strong uh, institutionally in both states. And um, unfortunately, they time and time again fight against this, the policies that will help more parents choose the schools that work best for their children, even if they're charter schools. And um, so I think the similarities where we saw, as advocates across the country see, we saw opposition from particularly fueled by the teachers union groups. Um, so I think that's what I would reflect on first. We had a lot of combative things with the teachers unions that we'll talk about later on, so (laughs) that'll come up. Um, What would you say, you know, we've done a lot of great things over the last few years. We filed a lawsuit. We launched a podcast. (laughs) Um, What do you think is your biggest accomplishment in your time here? Or the organization's biggest accomplishment, if you don't want to take all the credit. Yeah, it is definitely not my accomplishment. Let's just be clear about that. I I help other people execute here. That's my job. So anything that the organization accomplished is not mine. It's owned by everyone else who works here. So um, 
But I, I think I wouldn't point to any particular piece of legislation or policy change. I think what I would focus on is, is, is bigger than that and more important in my view. Um, our policy victories are important. Let me just say that first off. $54 million in new per-people funding for uh, every charter school student in the state. That, that is significant. Um, the, the, we defended the charter sector in Connecticut last year after an onslaught from every corner um, people looking to exploit um, a controversy playing out in the newspapers to harm children, to harm teachers, and to everyone who runs great charter schools in Connecticut. Uh, we defended them, and that landed in a, what we thought was a, a thoughtful place where the law was actually modernized and improved in some areas. Um, increasing funding for charter schools in Connecticut, growing them from 17 to 24, keeping up the enrollment growth. In New York, schools growing at a rapid clip. Um, those are all important, isolated victories. But I think the thing I'm most proud of in our work is how I think we put the funding equity issue on the map in both states in a way that is way more important in a way, in a movement building kind of way, in a um, long-term policy change kind of way that is vital. So it's, I think policies get changed. You have to make the case first. And I think we've um, built that narrative. We've built the public awareness um, from really from scratch, particularly amongst the media, that this is a policy problem in need of a solution. The lawsuit helped further that. Um, but I think I'm most proud of our work to kind of put that issue, to define it, and to build public awareness about it. Still a long way to go, but I feel that you know we spent the last three years just working our tails off trying to do that. Mm-hmm. So Kyle, we just talked about the good stuff. Now we want to talk about some of the tougher things. Um, can you t- tell us a little bit, you touched on it a little bit earlier, but what are some of the biggest hurdles to doing this work in chartering and ed reform advocacy? Well, I think um, one of the biggest challenges is that uh, we have a lot of elected officials from districts uh, with thousands of charter school families that still, um, for a, a myriad of reasons, uh, are uncomfortable voting to support policy changes that would benefit charter school students and those families. Um, things that would uh, you know, make sure that every charter school student has access to an adequate facility and the resources they need for that. The, to make sure that charter school students are not funded uh, at 60 to 70 cents on the dollar. Um, so those policy changes are big and controversial, and there's still people who represent thousands of these families. In some places where, uh, you know, more than half of the families enter charter school lotteries, um, these are, are, are districts that want charter schools. The constituents want it, but there's such a stranglehold on policymaking by interest groups in the state capitals that these lawmakers are often afraid for their political future in a and um, unwilling to vote the way their conscience many times tells them to. Um, So I think that's the biggest challenge is like, how do you translate the latent um, political power of those families in a a way that translates into uh, people uh, making good policy decisions in the state capitals? Uh, That's the biggest challenge I think charter advocates across the country face. but, you know, I think we're starting from a strong place. We're starting from an issue that poll after poll says that uh, the average voter supports, that clearly 
There are tens of thousands of families on charter school wait lists in Connecticut. The wait list grew by 60% last year. In New York, it's massive. We're talking, uh, at some point, it's going to reach 100,000 families on that wait list. Um, and so we have the, the sort of the, the people on our side. It's, and now it's a matter of how you, from a movement building perspective, you translate that into um, uh, power. And that, that's what I think, you know, we're, uh, is the biggest challenge we face. So in thinking about the uh, opposition that we have faced at the Capitol, um, three times you wrote an open letter, uh, first to the teachers' union, then to the assembly, and then again this year to the edge establishment. Of the three letters, which one is your favorite? <laughs> Uh, the, the most recent letter to the edgy establishment. Um, and really, I mean, the point behind all of those was really to call BS, um, on, uh, the stuff that we see at the Capitol almost every day, every day that we're there. Um, part, I think the importance of what Nesson does is, um, one of the many things that we do is watch and defend the interests of charter schools in the state capitals because they're under relentless and everyday attacks from interest groups all the time. <clears throat> and a lot of times I think some of those interest groups, like the teachers' unions, think they can waltz into the capital and say whatever they want, and it doesn't get filtered out into the cities and the other parts of the state. It's just sort of a closed conversation. And so what we tried to do with those open letters was to sort of open source that and, 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 and in a spirit of transparency, put it all out there and call them out for it and saying like with my most recent letter is about telling, asking them why a, a group of mostly privileged white folks want to stand in the way of choice for mostly black and Latino poor families in cities across the state of New York. Um, these are people who purport to fight for the little guy all the time but when there are actually choices to be made that would help those families, that those families say they want in poll after poll and after enrollment lottery after enrollment lottery, um, they stand in the way. And that's, that to me is just is uh, morally unacceptable. And um, there are very few times politics is about compromise and the art of possible. But there are uh, many opportunities in the course of any legislative session where there are just clear choices. Do you side with families or you decide with interest groups? And um, when the interest groups were being heavy-handed, I felt a part of our role was to step in and to call them out on it. And if you're listening to this right now thinking, like, what are these letters? Um, cheap blog plug. In the accompanying blog post with this podcast on extracreditblog.org, you'll be able to see each of those letters. Right. And part of it, just another note on the letters, the um, – this notion of the edge establishment, I think there is an undercurrent in this country of railing against the establishment. I think for, for the most part, for a good reason, um, people are disenchanted. And it's, um, I thought it was important to reveal to people and to make sure that others knew that the interest groups that fight the state capital are the establishment. They're the people with the multi-million dollar huge office parks um, in Latham and in, in the area around the Capitol, they're the people that uh, have hordes of lobbyists working on their behalf, not just one, um, not just two, 
uh, not just a few meetings. Th- these are they are the establishment. They are the people who've controlled educational policy making for decades, and um, you know I think it's important that when people are deciding whose side to be on, that they know which one's the establishment and which one is sort of the maverick. And I, that's why I see charters have always been that. And, you know, even though you, you might we might be lobbying more than we had and um, you might hear about charters more, we're still uh, the underdog here. And I'm just going to chime in on the letters to the Edge Establishment and the unions. The most recent one, the Edge Establishment letter, was so powerful that when we read the draft that Kyle sent in the morning that he read it, where when he wrote it, which I believe was his birthday, we were <laughs> at first not yes. sure if he really planned on sending it. We were really hopeful that he did, and he did, in fact, want to call BS, and we were really glad to do that because it does need to be said. But it was one of those things where we were like, is he just venting, or does he really want to send this? And we were really glad that we had the chance to do it because it does need to be said, and we are sticking up for the little guy. And that was a perfect example where there was a late-night opposition memo to in a year in which funding increases for district school students across the state were was almost uh, not really being debated. It was just a question of how much. There were still people that were trying to stand in the way of something that was just basically peanuts that was going to the charter schools in the grand scheme of the state budget. And that, to me, it, it was just like the height of um, greediness, and that's what I, we felt the need to call it out as that. So it was a fun day <laughs> for us here. We like to do that kind of work. So um, transitioning a little bit, as you are winding down your time here at Nexon, what's your outlook for chartering generally in Connecticut and New York? Yeah, I think um, the charter movement in a lot of – is you know, approaching 20 years, or in Connecticut, we just celebrated the 20th anniversary. Um, New York will too. Some states are up to 25 at this point, but we're approaching like two decades, right? And I, I think we've learned a lot in the process. I think one of the things <coughs> that is tricky for us is how do you grow the charter sector, but grow it with quality? So we're now, it's not enough to just be a charter school and to be a school of choice. Um, we now have years worth of data to show who's actually doing it well and who's not. And I think we still, in New York in particular, but also in Connecticut eventually, we still have to reckon with how do we uh, uh, open enough good schools that there's a, a strong, rigorous process to make sure the ones that open are going to start strong because the data shows you start strong, you tend to stay that way. But also, um, what do we do with the consistently low-performing schools? And I think the answer to that question is, um, you know, there must be a process in place and a, a comfort level with policymakers on uh, them being pushed to improve or close. And so I think we're now we have schools that are 10, 15 years um, around, and um, with that kind of track record you know, it's, it's kind of time for them to show, show and prove. Um, so I think that's one of the big issues. I think also the issue is, like I said before, how do you translate the thousands of stakeholders we're building in, in each of our, these states into a uh, politically powerful force to both protect the schools, protect their autonomy, 
um, but also uh, deliver on this uh, funding inequality problem, to deliver on policies that will help charter schools ensure they all have adequate facilities and they all have equal funding. Um, I think that's one thing. And then lastly, I think in the midst of that push for equal funding, how do you get how do you protect the, char- the autonomy and flexibility of charter schools, which is inherent to who they are, against the push to make them do everything just like district schools? There's always legislation every year that, say, that picks a mandate that district schools have to deal with and applies it to charter schools. And I think um, it, it has it, lawmakers will often sell that as something like equal treatment right, being even-handed towards schools and forgetting that charter schools were supposed to be free of those mandates um, in order to be who they are. We didn't get to this point um, by straddling them with all the mandates. The point was for them to be something different. And so it's okay that we are both public schools and have different mandates. We can be a spork, if you will. We don't have to pick one or the other. Um, And and like that, we can have equal funding and have greater flexibility because the flexibility, all the districts say they want that. So um, we shouldn't be giving charters less flexibility. Um, and so, but we should be giving them equal funding. So I don't think there's anything inherently inconsistent with saying we're public schools that deserve equal funding, but we, uh, charter schools need uh, fewer mandates and greater flexibility to achieve what they um, have achieved. So would you say the movement is in a better place now compared to when you started here? That's a really hard question. Um, and yes, I personally helped the movement get to a stronger... No, um, I, I would not say that. Um, are we in a stronger place? I think we are still growing at a fairly sizable clip, both... Um, in New York, less so on the number of schools um, in the last year, but more on the enrollment side. So we're still growing enrollment. Uh, Connecticut is still growing enrollment. Um, and I think the more families who have a chance uh, to make that choice, to choose a charter school, I think the better. And so I think we're stronger in the sense that we're larger. Um, and so are we more politically powerful? I, I think um, that's an open question. I think it's it's three years is not a large enough vantage point um, in order to make that call. Before we conclude, is there anything else that you'd like to add? Any parting thoughts? Um, I really enjoyed my work at the network. Um, I think the notion that there is a statewide advocate fighting for every school and every student who attends them um, and every teacher in that building uh, that knows the capitals better than anyone, that knows the stories uh, behind families and schools and everything that goes into this, is it, it's a vitally important institution in the, in the fabric um, of you know, how education policy gets made. And so working here has made me more confident in the, the notion that a strong association is important to having a strong uh, charter policy environment in a state. Uh, I think uh, the other thing I would add is that, um, you know, I think movements, if you look at uh, policy change movements over the years, it's never a straight linear trajectory. There are victories and defeats along the way, 
but the idea was that you there's a net improvement in the overall condition. So the the line may be jagged, but it it goes up as it's you know going up and down. And I think um, it's important that we realize that we may lose on occasion, and that's okay. Like as long as you're building the infrastructure and capacity to win, that you know, that's the most important thing and uh, learning from your losses. But losses are a normal part of any kind of movement building process. So whether that's Nesson is in its wins or losses, um, and thankfully we haven't had any major losses lately. I'm thankful for that, but they may become. And just I, I think it's important to remember that, you know, the civil rights movement, they lost major cases. Um, they lost major actions. Um and they're often galvanizing moments to go on and win later. Um, or they're just complete setbacks that take several years to re- rebound from. But I think that's just part of the process. And I think what we have to realize is that year-in, year-out wins are, are, are really important. And we can't, like, be asleep at the wheel. But I think multi-year, you, you get the big wins by lo- having a multi-year vantage point on the work. Thank you. Yes, thank you for Thanks joining for having us. us. Appreciate it. So, uh, in closing, you can head over to extracreditblog.org and check out the post that goes with this podcast. Uh, we'll have Kyle's letters up there and some other goodies for you. So, until next time, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.